Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. This is the podcast on which Science Rules. And as I hope you realize, it's a call-in show. So if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, make sure to uh, check my social handles. I'm on the gram. I'm booking the face. I'm tweeting. Uh, it's all there. And it's askbillnye.com. And you can send us your questions and comments. And we will review them and think deep thoughts and get you on the show. And, of course, I am once again joined by my dear friend, Science writer, editor, thoughtful thinker of thinkful thoughts, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Look who we have here. It's amazing. We're talking with a big data scientist, Sam Wong. If I understand, you're, you're a neuroscientist, and as though I got to tell you, from the Princeton Election Consortium, you are also a psephologist. True. So, Sam, what is a psephologist? I believe a psephologist is an analyst of polls. Is this a new discipline? I have to say, this is the first time I've ever seen that word. Yeah. You know, when, when opinion polls started getting numerous enough to aggregate back in 2004, it, I think it just occurred to some of us to start doing it. And there are a few of us as hobbyists who started putting them together and, uh, and trying to make sense out of them because it was too many data points. Because who wants to look at a graph and look at only one data point at a time? It's some kind of bizarre striptease. Why not look at the entire set of data at once? And so that was how I started doing that in 2004. So I have told people the last 19 and a half years, if Al Gore had become president, if he had be and people love to hate Al Gore, oh my goodness, but if he were had become president, the world would be quite different. Way different. Yeah. And and uh, it's a result of this very close election. Yeah. Right? A little tiny event there. A few hundred votes, a badly designed ballot. Like a lot happened in 2000. So tell us how you, about your analysis. Well, so like a lot of people, I got really interested in this weird change in our politics, right? So remember, uh, Congress changed hands in 94. 
1994. Thank you. 1994 <laughs> uh, with Newt Gingrich and his crew. And then we had um, a lot of polarization in this country where the parties started really hating on each other. Uh, and I got really interested in uh, polling data in 2000 because it was such a close presidential race. And I uh, told my friends just casually, it looks like it's going to come down to Florida. There was this guy, Ryan Lizza, a political reporter at the New Republic at the time. And he had a map showing state-by-state state polls. And it was possible to tell just by examining the map closely that that election was going to come down to Florida. If you, you remember if you, uh, the movie Fahrenheit 9-11, the opening scene is of Al Gore at a campaign rally in Florida saying, Florida, thank you. So the reason he's in Florida is almost certainly that he's got an analyst on his staff and says, Mr. Vice President, uh, it's going to come down to Florida. So you should be in Florida on the last day of the campaign. So, so then I started doing it more systematically in 2004. But you're a physicist, right? Uh, my background's in physics. And then I, uh, my PhD is, uh, my undergrad degrees in physics, Caltech. Then I went to uh, Stanford for PhD uh, in neuroscience. And so I'm a card carrying. Of course you did. Of course I did. But no, but I mean, you know, like I would say professionally, I'm a neuroscientist, but I, I work with data like, you know, as physicists do. And I, I specifically work with experimental data and try to reduce it to make sense out of it. And 2004, I just remember there's all these polls. You think there are a lot 2004 of 2004 or 2000? Uh, the 2000, I just did it talking with friends. And then we, uh, and we watched the election returns. We were at a, at a street party that we organized for the neuroscience conference in, in New Orleans. And we, there was a brass band. Street, st- street party for the neuroscience conference in New Orleans. Yeah, sure. just, yeah, the, just, the neuroscientists were just kind of pouring out into the street of New Orleans? No, it was just the, our annual meeting is in a different place every year. This is the Society for Neuroscience? Society for Neuroscience. And that yep. year, my friends and I uh, booked out a nightclub and we hired a brass band. It was election night. We thought that would be really interesting. Are, are neuroscientists fun to party with? Variable. Variable. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but, you know. But, sorry, I don't mean to derail the story. So. No, no. <laughs> anyway, but uh, but we watched into the evening, uh, you know, with the brass band playing in the background. And it was sort of exciting. And then it became apparent that it was going to take a really long time to resolve. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but then fast forward to 2004, we had a ton of polling data back then. And it was just kind of crazy making because it would be one poll of John Kerry up in Ohio and another poll of George W. Bush ahead in Pennsylvania, maybe behind in Pennsylvania. And it was just maddening to see these data points dribble out one at a time. And and the physicist in me wanted to take all the data and reduce it into some simple snapshot of uh, where the presidential race was. So I figured out how to do that. Now, did you have a I don't know you, but are you a uh, bleeding heart liberal blue state person? Uh, I am a registered independent, and mm-hmm. I uh, I tend to sympathize with progressives and liberals, but I'm an independent. Yeah, all right. And so did you have an interest in this in order – and just for the viewer, for the listener rather, did you have an interest in advancing progressive causes by means of this analysis? Well, so here's the way I put it. I, um, I was really interested in helping people optimize their efforts. And so often places like 538 do it kind of like as sports play-by-play. And my attitude was very different about it. My attitude was you need to go where your efforts are most effective. And so, you know, my vote in New Jersey is not worth very much because everybody knows that New Jersey is going to go Democratic. But if I just go across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, you know, drive nice people to the polls who can't get there otherwise, you know, just help get out the vote. Every one of those people has thousands of times the influence that year had thousands of times the influence on the probability of, of who the winner would be than I did. And so, you know, my little vote was not very much. And uh, a Pennsylvania voter's vote is worth several thousand mines. So, so, I, so did you actually do that? Did you go and, and help people get people to the polls? Yeah, I, it turns out I'm really bad at that. So I went <laughs> over there and I went over and I tried to register voters one day. And I spent the entire day walking around Philadelphia and I registered one voter. It was like this kid who was 17, who was going to be 18. And it was in some African-American 
uh, independent fast food restaurant. They were all wearing like blue and silver pharaoh headdresses. And it was- Oh, sure. Of course. Sure they were. Of yeah. course they were. <laughs> and, and, and so they just all crowded around this kid and they said, you know what? You're going to register to vote and this guy's going to register you. And that was the one person. So I, I discovered that I was terrible at that. Okay. But more generally, I think I'm sure our listeners are interested, you know, not, not just in how to vote, make sure your vote is counted fairly, but if there's anything you can do to increase the power right. of your vote. So what can people do? So the, the point is, uh, if we do this stuff over at election.princeton.edu, we do calculations where we figure out where's the nearest place to you to get out the vote, where you're getting out the vote is going to have the most effect. What are the political races where your donations are going to make the most difference? So for example, uh, there are a lot of hot Senate races this year. And whoever becomes president, he or she is going to face uh, a Senate who is either of the same or a different party. And that's going to make a big difference to what happens next. And so there's close Senate races in North Carolina, uh, maybe in Kansas. Kentucky? Uh, uh, mm, I'm keeping an eye on Kentucky, but I would say currently is not. Amy McGrath. Yeah, so the deal with Kentucky is that Mitch McConnell is super unpopular, which is a good indicator of somebody being turfed out of office. But he is a survivor, and he has come back from being unpopular. Like six years ago, uh, he was, one of the, again, one of the least popular senators in the country, and he pulled it out against this woman, Allison Grimes. So, yeah, Amy McGrath is a very strong candidate, but Kentucky is pretty Republican. All right, so hang on. North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky. Uh, maybe not Kentucky, but let's see. Um, <laughs> oh, not Kentucky. Yeah, uh, not Let's Kentucky. see. Other states. Colorado is going to be close. Uh, that's going to be a good one. Uh, Maine is going to be close. Susan Collins is endangered this year. Uh, uh, so uh, before we go too far, you say that a Pennsylvanian's vote is worth a thousand times what a New Jerseyan's vote is. Thousands. Thousands. When it, comes, when it comes to the presidency, that is certainly the case. So explain that. So the idea is that any one of our votes is not worth very much because if we vote or if we don't, technically that doesn't that almost never affects the outcome of the election, except in very rare cases. But once we vote in numbers of hundreds or thousands, then you can start talking about a thousand voters meaningfully affecting the probability of the election uh, of the of the outcome of a local race or the entire national race. So in the case of the presidency, states that are safely Republican and safely Democratic in our weird system for picking a president, this electoral college, it's all these winner-take-all contests. And so if New Jersey goes 55-45 or 60-40, it doesn't matter. All the electoral votes go to the Democratic candidate. And there's no chance or virtually no chance that New Jersey will ever go to the Republican. So therefore, uh, at least when it comes to the presidency, my vote has very little power. On the other hand, Pennsylvania is super close, right? It, like it went to Donald Trump by a, uh, by a very small fraction, by uh, about a percentage point last time around. And so therefore, turning out the vote a little bit more in Pennsylvania or in Wisconsin or Michigan last time in 2016 would have made a big difference. So when it comes to the presidency, my vote is nearly powerless. Uh, people's votes across the river in Pennsylvania are worth a lot. And so logically, if I want to move the needle on the presidency, I should get over there or I should give money. So control of Congress matters. Mm. Uh, a lot of people in my community went out and got out the vote in congressional districts uh, about 10, 15 minutes from Princeton. And that was really consequential getting out the vote because it helped flip congressional seats. All right. So I got a couple things. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the 2000 race, which is where this started for yes. you, right? Where Al Gore would have done something about climate change. Yes. Maybe it was good, or but he would have done something. He would have done more than nothing, which is approximately yeah, yeah. the and first then, order. Yeah. And then he 
probably wouldn't have invaded the wrong country led by the wrong guy. Uh, which it, it does is, seem kind of like a rookie error that he wouldn't have made. I, <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I think, yeah. Cause his father was not involved in that and so on. Right. Uh, so that got you interested in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And looking back, I, I only realize now that we've had a string of close elections, right? Cause there's that one Bush versus Kerry was close. We just had a super close election that kind of in some deep sense went the wrong way. Mm-hmm. We're in this era of close elections and it's the first string of really close elections since the Gilded Age. When was the Gilded Age? Gilded, in, as, in uh, so there's the Civil talk. War, uh, then there was uh, Reconstruction, and then from about 1876 to 1896 was this period of close presidential elections. The popular vote loser became president twice, and that's just like now, right? We've had two popular vote losers, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, two losers became, you know, popular vote losers, uh, won the Electoral College. Uh, and it was a time of deep, uh, bitter partisanship, there was a technological disruption. So the reason the Gettysburg Address is handwritten rather than typewritten is the typewriter wasn't invented until after Abe Lincoln was mm-hmm. dead. Uh, and so there are all these things that just tore up society at the time. Race relations, right? So there was this like huge turmoil of, of a whole part of the nation that was newly free, but was also, you know, like the, the majority still wanted to hold them down. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of sounds familiar. All right, but let me ask you this. Colorado just passed a law. Yes. about their electoral college votes. They passed the National Popular Vote Compact. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So have you studied that? Do you see yeah, that as a future? So tell, tell the listener, if you would. So the electoral college is crazy, as you well, know. Well, it's left over from 230 years ago. Yeah, I was just reading this really great book that's coming out by Jesse Wegman about, uh, about how it came about. And it's, you know, these slaveholder states that were nervous about being left out because they were a small population and they wanted to vote for, on behalf of their slaves. Uh, and these white slave owners. And so it was this horrible compromise and everybody was having this horrible summer. It was August. They were trying to get out of there. Everything else is done. And they were trying to figure out how to pick a president. And then they just hurried up and they, and this is their unfinished business. And now we're stuck with it. So it's got weird asymmetries in it. Uh, some states are way more powerful than others. We call those swing states. Uh, some states get, those states that are powerful get all the presidential visits. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump only visited a handful of states in uh, in twenty sixteen. Nobody goes to Nebraska or Wyoming Nobody or, go- or New York. Yeah, and so people say that people right. So they only go there to, to like say raise money. And so uh, people say that the electoral college protects small states, but no. What it does is it it protects states that are that happen to be right on the knife edge. And so um, so yeah. So there's this reform that you mentioned. The reform is okay. Changing the constitution is going to be really super hard. So what can we do instead? And the instead is, let's make a deal where everybody commits to, we're all going to give all our electoral votes to the person who wins the national popular vote. Everybody in this state. Everybody in the state. So in, the, in your in your the, this news story, Colorado, um, Colorado agrees that rather than giving their electoral votes to whoever they vote for, they agree that they will give their electoral votes to who the nation votes for. And if enough states get together and do that, if they get to the magic total of 270 electoral votes, if they get to 270, then they all, it's kind of like all jumping in the reservoir together. It's like, okay, I'm scared to go in. You're scared to go in. Let's all hold hands. We're just all going to jump in. So it's kind of like that. And so it's called the National Popular Vote Compact. And so it's a way of reforming. It's a way of doing away with the Electoral College without changing the Constitution, which, so the, is, which is super hard. Well, yeah. So I think it's it's going to be a trend, and I also say as a native of the U.S., it started out West. This is where this sort of new idea would emerge. Reforms. <clears throat> yeah, actually, you know, that particular idea was uh, – the idea came from the guy who invented uh, scratch-off lottery cards. 
He's he's this guy. Uh, he's I hope com- he's wealthy. He he is. His name is John Koza, <laughs> and he's a computer scientist, I, I believe. And he invented scratch offs, and then you know he had a bunch of money, and then he started thinking about the electoral college and and how it was this weird bug in democracy, and yeah, he, yeah I could fix that, and he figured out how to, how he could. So fix everybody, it. if if Colorado, I mean rather Colorado is going to do that this year, if enough states do it. Uh, okay, oh, so, it is. so so it's a contingent deal. Enough ha- states have to do mm-hmm. it for it to kick in. Like, like, like you could imagine a, a law passing, we're just going to do it unilaterally, but states usually don't want to do that. So if enough states join Colorado in this, yeah. then the electoral college would become in, uh, not ineffective, but wouldn't matter. Right. It would just be, a, it would be a nominal thing that was on the books, Left but everybody over. would understand that the yeah. winner of the presidency would be whoever got more votes. Which would be, that would be a cool thing. It I would mean, be like the rest of the world. It would be like every other well, I think race be, in the it, U.S. It would be like democracy. Sort well, of. plus <laughs> I think it's like, and you know, people love to talk about what was in the minds of the people who wrote the constitution, but in the U.S. we call the founding fathers. They intended it to be a democracy. They were just trying to make compromises with a weird leftover thing. Having slaves is not really a democratic idea. And and parts of this didn't come into place until 1824. So it was actually several decades before we started getting things like winner-take-all elections. And so whatever they intended, they didn't intend political parties. They thought they're not thinking about those. They didn't intend for there to be electronic communication so we could form factions nationwide. They didn't intend for elections to be winner-take-all. Those are all things that happened after they got done. And so the whole thing is just this giant kludge. Yeah. So anyway, so I, you know, I, uh, I, I have a pretty strong interest in, as you can see, in, in, no, it's fantastic. in, in, in fixing now, so, democracy. Well, well, this, so, the, so there's one more aspect of the big data that I'd like to jump in on before we, before we go to our callers, which is the idea of gerrymandering, that, uh, that you can sort of like, you can shape a, an election district. So exp- explain the, where the word comes from. I just think it's, it's always cool yeah. to know. And, uh, yeah. So one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was this guy named Elbridge Gerry. He later became governor of Massachusetts, and he had the ill fortune to be governor of Massachusetts when the uh, the legislature there passed this crazy map where they were trying to build advantage. I always get it mixed up. I think they were trying to build an advantage for the Federalist Party, uh, I, I, it, these old party names. I think they were trying to protect the Federalists. So they built this crazy district that was shaped like a salamander, a political cartoonist drew it like a salamander and said, uh, and called it the gerrymander. And poor Elbridge Gerry, just because he happened to be governor and signed it into law, um, it, it became famous because it was a way to try to protect one party. It turned out the technology for gerrymandering was not very good at that time, 1812. And so it failed. Uh, it created a huge advantage for uh, one party in 1812. The next year, there was an election one year later in 1813, and it just completely collapsed. And they just, they, they got turfed out of office. They got spanked really hard. Uh, and it was because the, the War of 1812 was super unpopular. And it was just, and so, so the technology was terrible. But Unfortunately, the, now the technology is much better. Much better. So we've got better technology. Voters are more reliable because we, we hate on the other party so much. And so there's this polarization that makes people really predictable in their, their habits. And, it, and so it's, it's become this uh, game of winning all the marbles where you can really get what you want policy-wise by sticking it to the other side. So how do you use a data-driven approach to fight back on that? Uh, there's a few different ways to do it. So uh, one way to do it is to have measures of partisanship where you can say, let's look at a map and just do statistical uh, analysis of election results to say, well, if one side has its wins be super lopsided where they're always winning 80% of the vote and the other side wins with just 55% of the vote, then it's suggestive that w- that the 80% side got packed into a few districts. And so if you can just do a statistical test, is one average larger than the other? And th- that's called a T-test. 
And uh, that was a test that was originally developed to, uh, to monitor the quality of beer. Uh, there's this guy. A uh, worthy undertaking. Yes. Student, student's <laughs> T-test was originally developed in the manufacture of beer by this guy named Gossett, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, and, and that has, that's a life's work right there. He, he, he was a, he was a um, master brewer at, um, at Guinness. And he, he just wanted to know whether an average had gotten off from the expected average and he developed this test. And so it turns out that test is the, that's the first line of defense in telling whether a gerrymandering has occurred, just simple tests like that. You can do more complicated things. Like you can take all the election data precinct by precinct, put it into a database and start asking, well, this map, whether it's got nice shapes or crazy shapes, either way, ask, is the map more extreme than the vast majority of all possible maps? And so you just take a computer, draw millions of possible maps. That's uh, all you do, Corey. Just take a computer, do. draw millions of possible I, maps. I, 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 that, I was doing that just it, last night. Yeah, but it used to, it, it, you are right, it, it used to not be possible. So the technology <laughs> has gotten so much better that the offenses have gotten more extreme. Uh, people have been able to commit these offenses, but also detection Tell us methods. what an offense is here. An offense would be um, you take a state like, say, North Carolina, and even though the state uh, votes, say, 50-50 for Republicans and Democrats, uh, Democrats win three of those 13 seats, Republicans win 10. So that would be an example of the or outcome. Because being, the shapes of the... Because doors. of creative shape drawing. Stick around for more science rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Science Rules is back. Different demographics have become more and more reliable in the way they vote. Uh, whites who didn't go to college, uh, Asian Americans, African Americans, Hispanics. Uh, all these demographics have become more and more predictable in how they vote. And because of that, you don't, you know, you can almost do um, a really good gerrymander without even knowing how people vote. We have callers on this show. Oh, Bill, okay. what do you think? Should we get a caller? I think we should get a I caller. I think we should get a caller. I think we should hear from Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay, are you there? Hi. Oh, hi, Lindsay. Yes. Welcome to the show. Uh, where are you calling from? Though my question is not political, I'm in Iowa. Okay. All right. Lead on. My question leans away from politics um, because... I work in mental health and study psychology, and being how your um, guest for the day is a neuroscientist, I was asking about um, if he had, if he was aware of any like new discoveries in terms of like brain health or like mental health. Oh, thank you, that's Lindsay. A, that's that's a great question because uh, you you do you, you apply sort of big data principles to to neuroscience and and 
and mental health as right. well, right? So, yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yes, Lindsay, thank you. I'm a working neuroscientist. I run a research lab. Uh, I've got about 15 people working in the lab at, uh, at Princeton where I teach. And um, the way I would put it is this. A lot of things that we know about mental health, I think, are, are principles that we've known for a while. And then the scientific research is starting to catch up and understanding why these things are true. So an example of this would be uh, that, say, uh, for, um, for mental health, for instance, with, say, uh, younger people, like in their teens and older, where mood disorders may come up, uh, exercise turns out to be as effective as taking an anti antidepressant. And, you know, it's been kind of a mystery why. It's starting to emerge that exercise triggers uh, secretion of growth factors that make your neurons grow and make the connections between neurons, uh, the dendrites, which are the branches of, of neurons. So that's but an why does that happen? Well, then there's this basic biology where the neurotrophin is this molecule that binds to the neuron. It makes the neuron, uh, it, it's a signal that goes to the nucleus, makes growth happen. We have mechanisms where experience and resources get turned into brain plasticity. And there are times in our life when we need our brains to be plastic. And so evolution selects for having these capabilities. And then we end up being these miraculous machines that do these amazing things because we've, you know, in some sense, we've learned over evolutionary time to be really good at converting oxygen or physical exercise into brain plasticity. Uh, you know, another thing that we may know we're learning more about is uh, on the flip side, uh, the genetics of something like autism, where uh, where most of our susceptibility to autism is inherited, it's combinations of genes. That's something that's been discovered in the last few years, um, in the last decade or so. Uh, but it's this combination of genes and the environment working together to make you who you are. Whether it's you mean nature and nurture together. That's crazy. <laughs> it's I, it's it's a mind bender. Well, well so uh, what are we learning about autism? Because that's an area that you've been focusing on a fair bit. Oh yeah, my laboratory is super interested in how sensory experience gets converted into uh, personality and cognitive abilities. Uh, just to step back from what my lab does, um, for example, get this whole nature nurture thing. I got really interested in all these things that we read about autism. It's kind of, it actually resembles the polling thing we were talking about before, where um, where you. You look in the news and it, the news says, if you wait till 40, your kid is 30% more likely to become autistic. If you uh, get, you know, whatever, if you, if you have a, if you, if, you mean, if you wait until 40, 40 before you have a, before you have children, you mean? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's all these news stories that come out and it started driving me crazy, just like with the individual political polls. One study would come out at a time and I wanted some way to take all of them and turn them into a single picture. And so I wrote this piece for the New York Times called uh, How to Think About the Risk of Autism. And I said, okay, let's just take all the measures and have one thing. Let's call it a risk ratio. Uh, if, the, if it's a 30% increase in risk, then that's from, say, 1 out of 50 to 1.3 out of 50. That's a risk ratio of 1.3. So I just took all the risks. I put them together. I made a chart, uh, and, and they published it. It was really great. It was nice to have a figure in a New York mm -hmm. Times piece. It's you know a rare privilege. And, and the top factors are sharing all your genome with somebody with autism, sharing half your genome with somebody with autism. Uh, and there's uh, and so from that, we learn that these factors like uh, waiting until you're 40 to have a kid, that's a pretty small risk. H sharing half your genome with somebody, that's a pretty big risk. And so what we learn from that is that a lot of the causation of autism is genes, and we don't have that much control over that except by you know picking who to marry and have a kid with. So, Lindsay, did this get to your question? Um. Yes. Thank you very much. Well, Thanks, uh, Lindsay. Now, yeah. What inspired you to ask this question? Do you have a particular interest in mental health? Well, 
my my passions lie more on the um on the specifics of trauma oh. um and that really started uh, a few years ago when I listened to a presentation by uh, Dr. Campbell on the neuroscience of trauma and where she lays out what's going on in the brain at a time of like an assault or something. And that really kind of, you know, got the cogs moving for something I really cared about. Yeah. Traumatic experience is terrible because it, uh, it rely it triggers brain mechanisms where you just learn in a single trial. So sometimes when something very scary happens, you only need to experience it once to learn it. And there's other kinds of things that take hundreds of, uh, trials to learn. Like, I don't know, like uh, learning how to do calculus or learning an obscure fact or, or learning a route to get to a new place. You have to do it more than once uh, sometimes. And so traumatic experience is terrible because it triggers learning pathways that are, it, it's just the phrase you can look up if you look in Google Scholar is single trial learning. And single trial learning uh, is something that happens in certain parts of the brain. And it's, uh, and one but thing- But that also has an evolutionary huge advantage Yes, there's yeah, an advantage. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's helpful to learn from a single trial. Yeah. And the thing about Don't single... Don't touch that stove. Right. So yeah. the thing about single trial learning is that it, it teaches you, it tends to teach you very specific things. That stove will hurt you, so don't touch that. It's bad at generalization. So for example, if you have a dog and you're trying to get the dog to do something, it is not constructive to teach the dog by scaring the dog because all the dog is going to learn is, uh, evidently, I should not stand near the my owner in this part of the room. Yeah. And, and so... so and this is why, for instance, when people have traumatic experiences, they come back to the same place. And, and Lindsay, I think, probably knows a lot about this uh, from uh, dealing with people and thinking about this topic. You come back to the same experience, and it's scary again. And it is really hard to undo that. You need to have – there are therapies where you unlearn that, and it takes hundreds of trials of going back to that place and having kind of an innocuous experience where it's less scary and you do it hundreds of times. And th that uses different brain pathways. So, Lindsay, thank you for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Good uh, question. I'd like to get another caller because you do so many different things with, uh, with this big data approach. Uh, I'd like to bring Christina into the conversation here. Uh, Christina, are you on the line? Hi, I'm here. Okay. And where is here? St. Louis. I had a question. I know on the show you talked about predictions and telling people where to put their efforts. So I was just wondering, how can we, the people, use data to enrich our personal lives more? How can big data help make, your, to your, make web, your life go better? Go to Sam's website. I mean, it depends on what domain you mean, but uh, I will say that, um, you know, the thing I was talking about was using data for figuring out if you, if there's a political issue you care about, finding someplace near you where you can make a difference. Um, if you're in the domain of health, I don't know, like I would, um, I would look on, um, I mean, what, what area do you want to use data to make your life better in, Christina? I think health would be a really good one. I feel like we're all always kind of on this journey for bettering ourselves yeah. in any way that data can help. Uh, I, am, I am super interested. Whenever something happens health-wise in my family, I, they're just resources I turn to. Since I'm at a university, I, I really like this subscription service called UpToDate, where you can just go on there and find reports by doctors, like, integrating the best evidence possible to figure out uh, what would be uh, the best for a particular situation. Uh, I think WebMD is not too bad. Um, generally speaking, like like review articles, like for instance, if you want to know whether vaccination is safe, uh, there's this whole series of reports called Cochrane Reports. Uh, generally speaking, it's a good idea to read review articles rather than single studies because single studies can be wrong just by chance or by poor design. 
Um, single studies can lead you astray. Um, so yeah, review articles and, uh, I would say review articles on PubMed at pubmed.gov, uh, up to date. Yeah. These are, they're good resources out there. I think, I think there are ways to live better. And, you know, and while I'm here, uh, if you're interested in brain health, there are some terrific books. One's called welcome to your brain. I wrote that. And another one's called welcome to your child's brain. I wrote that too with my co-author Sandra Ammon. I'm sorry, I had uh, no. There's no, 20 in a carton. They yes. make great gifts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> available and, in fine uh, bookstores, the, also uh, online at Amazon and many other up. fine resources. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Northern Hemisphere solstice is coming right up. Yeah, very important. And uh, at this recording, so is the equinox. Yeah. Uh, and well, so it, those are great gift-giving opportunities. And if keep one for yourself and give away the other 19. Yeah. That's what well, I'm saying. What do you think about personal data trackers? Because I know a lot of people are doing that now. Uh, you know, just collecting a lot of data about yourself. Is that a useful thing? I can't tell if that's useful. I think it's mainly useful if you're the kind of person who loves to uh, collect data. I just met somebody who's training for a half marathon, and she was showing me all her running statistics, and it was fascinating to see her like, oh, the first mile you run kind of slow, and then you pick it up by the third mile. I think looking at that data, if you're the right kind of person, really keeps you on task, right? There's this thing in child development called a mediating object where uh, if it's your uh, you can get a kid to pay attention by saying, okay, honey, when you hold the picture of the mouth, then it's your turn to talk. I'm drawing a mouth here. If, if, I'm drawing an ear now. If, it's, if there's a picture of an ear, then it's your turn to listen. And these mediating objects have been demonstrated to help kids stay on task. And so I think, you know, honestly, one thing about big data and data collection apps is that whatever you're trying to do, I think it helps keep you on task. I, like, it's well known that data recording helps people stick with the diet. Um, the other thing it, it's good for is that if you want to be community-minded, uh, depending on the app, then there's aggregated data where even if it doesn't make a big difference in your life, it's millions of data points that can be put together to create a picture of what might be better for public health. So I think that I, my t I'm fascinated by the phenomenon of people who are willing to collect data about themselves. Just so well, narcissistic, but it's, also... Well, it's nerdy. And it's I nerdy. Science Rules will be right back. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Science Rules. We have another fun caller on the line. Hey, fun caller. What's <laughs> I, your name? I, I'm going out on a limb here and assuming this next caller is going to be fun. I hope I'm fun. Hi, I'm Gal. I'm from New York City. Hello, Gal. Uh, what's your question? Hi, uh, I was wondering what should we change about our U.S. voting system? Sam, you're driving. So in the near term, there's specific things that we can fight for that will make legislators more responsive. And I, the way I would characterize it, it's like an engineered system where you have positive feedback. Imagine that if you, uh, if you, if you don't have positive feedback, then the room gets really hot and there's no way to, to get the temperature under control. And if you have a thermostat that says, okay, it's too hot, let's come back and then feedback and fix the, and then give feedback to keep things under control. Broadly speaking, there's an engineering problem in our democracy where there's not enough feedbacks to make 
legislators more responsive to voters. Like, like over the last hundred years, we've made de- democracy more responsive to people's votes, uh, things like party primaries and so on. But there's just these little tweaks that can make things better. Uh, an example of something that can make things better in the near term would be um, fighting for fair districting, for getting back to gerrymandering, uh, fighting for laws to help uh, to take the power of drawing lines out of the hands of legislators. There's an initiative that's going to be on the ballot this November in Arkansas. There's a law that's under consideration in uh, as well uh, in uh, Virginia that's being debated this week, actually. That's a really important reform other places like Nevada. So redistricting reform is a way to make legislators more responsive to voters. That's I think that's an important reform, and we're pretty hard at work on that at Princeton. Another is just voting reforms where if you have a, an election where one person gets 41% of the vote, another, another one gets 40, and then a third one gets uh, 19% of the vote. Sorry, it took me just a brief <laughs> moment there. Uh, then, you know, 41% wins. But that doesn't seem quite right. And so there are new voting systems that are coming into play. Like there's one called ranked choice voting. And so that's a way to, to make sure that, that, that most voters are not too annoyed by the outcome. And so supporting those reforms, I think, is a really good way to, uh, to improve democracy. In the, long term, um, in the long term, I think there are other fixes that are important, like finding ways to reform campaign finance so that money doesn't have such an outsized role. Uh, we were talking about the Electoral College and doing away with it. It's going to take a while to do those because we're in this weird place where there's this partisan tension and things can't get a whole lot better in 10 years. And in some, at some level, the reason I'm talking about the boring or you know more technical near-term reforms like ranked choice voting and redistricting reform is we got to hang on to what we have. And if we can hang on for about 10 or 15 years, and if we can just get away from this kind of hateful time that we're in, if we survive that long then we can start implementing these large things. And so, so, ha- so, Gal, so is, do you have any recommendations? Gal, let me ask you, you want to change things for the better, is that right? Many people oh, do. <laughs> well, some people want to change it for the worse, but you know, they, they say everybody's a hero in their own story. I think people who tr- support Trump think that they're, they, they yes. support changing things for the better. I mean, Every, yeah, everybody thinks they want change right, for the better. But, but in Gal's case, he, he really means it. So uh, do you have any advice for Gal? Gal, what, what are your special superpowers? What are you good at? Tech, other stuff? I like to think that I'm good with data. Okay, if you're a data guy, then there are certainly organizations that do data for good, and you can you can email me afterwards, but uh, uh, but there are organizations that, uh, New York City is rich in tech, and there are people here in New York City who are trying to use data to, uh, to work for campaigns, to move their issues forward, whether it be housing or fairness in all kinds of domains, immigration. Data can be powerful, and there's this... I, I think you're in a domain where you can make a big difference uh, politically and in your community. Wow. So thank you. Go for, get them, go. Thank, thank you for calling and, and getting us going. So, so Sam, before we wrap things up here, we, we've talked about, you know, neuroscience, autism, elections. You started out in physics. You've sort of been in a lot of different places. What what ties that all together? Right? You you, you seem very natural moving from one to the next. I'm curious, in your mind, are these things all related? Is there a running thread through all of that? Short attention span. <laughs> What'd you say? I'm Short sorry. attention no, span. It's a joke. It's <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Squirrel. Um, uh, but honestly, I, I really like thinking about new problems. And so the thing about data science is that you, data science is, like, at least the way I do it, is this combination of looking at data points and figuring out a way to simplify them and look for the order in them. Like when I'm working with people in my lab, trying to figure out, you know, how to 
get an accurate measurement of how many cells there are in some region of the brain, we're working with data and we're trying to simplify it to, to reduce the data. Uh, it's true when trying to figure out political stuff. And so I'm habitually, uh, I, think, I think it comes from undergraduate work uh, as a physics major, looking for simple ways to express relationships and data. And then um, just, I don't know, wanting to make things better. Like I think that neuroscience research is a question of understanding how the brain works. It's sort of this abstract goal that makes us, I think, better as a species. Um, or it could be um, uh, looking for ways to make democracy more responsive. Corey, I, I uh, see wait. clouds. Oh, uh -oh. I saw, oh, it smells like, is that rain blowing? No. Is that lightning? You did not uh, tell me about this. Yeah, lightning. It, it's, it's actually, it's rain. It's raining data in the studio, and there's lightning. It's time for the lightning round. So, Sam, it is time for the lightning round. We ask you a question. You, we want you to answer quickly. It's hard for all of us because it's so much fun, but here we go. Okay. What big problem could be solved by big data but hasn't been solved yet? Yet. Solved by big data not solved yet? Yes. Um, where, would, where, where would you like to apply the principles big of big data? data? Principles. What's a problem out there? Next problem you want to go after. How about that? Uh, I'll come back to that. Let me process that okay. for just a well, second. Okay. Right, so. What's the most important idea from big data that is being ignored? Uh, covert, covert violations of privacy where you can learn stuff about people without seeming to gather identifier information. Yeah. So friends of mine were talking about uh, changing their uh, landscape business from one vendor to another and they started getting ads from the other vendor because yeah. the phone was on right. apparently. Right, so protections. Whoa. Whoa. What is the most common misconception people have about voting? The most common misconception about voting is that... Um, that your vote counts for something if you live in a, a state that's already going one way or the other. Honestly, I think it's the the conception that your vote doesn't count because there are local elections, state elections. I've become so interested in local elections. The Federalist in me says there are all these ways to make local change. And I think that people often don't look locally. I think that I think your vote does count. And I think, you know, honestly, I'm just gonna blare for a second. Blare it. Okay. Voting is like it's like meditation or prayer. Like, you know, if you if you believe in God, uh, you know, prayer doesn't make God better. Prayer makes you better. Okay, voting makes you better. So okay, right make, okay. So you know, voting is just oh, yeah. a virtue. Uh, okay, so oh yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a little <laughs> slow clap at the end. <laughs> What's the most important thing that you have learned about the brain? The thing, most important thing I've learned about the brain is um, that I inherited a range of possibilities from my biological parents. My parents. Uh, and then what I did with that was up to my experiences. And this is a combination of what I got and what I did with it. And honestly, the most important thing I learned is that apparently exercise late into life is going to really help keep that brain alive. And so right I, on. I, I think that's the one thing Exercise, people. Yeah. If you had a totally different job, you weren't a professor at Princeton, what would your job be? You touch on a lot of things. Surely you can come up with another job. Another job? <laughs> uh <laughs> what would you do? What would I do? I mean, I guess what I would do, I mean, the first thing I would do is like, I don't know, I'd kind of like to be honestly a lettuce. This is going to sound really nerdy, but I'd like to like work for a legislator and write laws and make things better. I bet okay. you there's somebody that could set you up with that. Maybe you could write for a bunch of legislators. Yeah. Or, you know, or actually, you know what? It would be a really good job. Like uh, this would come back to the climate thing. It would be really awesome to go and find ways to capture carbon. And I think that would be a fun job oh, to like think of technology. I have a friend who's I have a friend who's abandoning neuroscience 
his name is Lauren and he is getting ready to, uh, to like leave neuroscience and he wants to go do things like figure out how to like capture carbon, like land well, coral, coral that, that just, you know, that's a so pretty both sides, damn big problem to solve. Big, but you know what we say in magic? No, in science, <laughs> it's all done with molecules. So what is the bog turtle? The and why do you care about it? The bog turtle is the state reptile of my home, New Jersey. How did that happen? It happened in the following way. So it turns out... <laughs> so my daughter has a science teacher, and several science teachers in Princeton got interested in... There's a town of Princeton, There's a town Jersey, of Princeton, and, uh, and, and one of them asked the teacher, said, uh, you know, Mr. Eastburn, is there a... He was talking about state animals, and they said, is there a state reptile? And he's all into, like, turtles and turtle genetics and turtle classification. Well, of course. And he said, of course he is. He's a science teacher. He loves that sort of stuff. And he said, no, there's no, uh, there's no state reptile. And so their classes worked on it. They, uh, they lobbied our local assemblyman, uh, our lo local uh, state senator as well. They said, you know, Assemblyman Zwicker, Senator Bateman, can you help us out here? And, uh, and they, they wrote a bill. Uh, my daughter uh, went and testified in the state capitol, held up a picture of a bog turtle and said, first off, you need to know that this animal is adorably cute. And it is a very cute animal. Little, I Googled it, and it truly is. It's got a little orange stripe on its neck. It's endangered, so so it's helpful to have it as a Recognized, mascot. yes. Recognize it. And so these kids embarked on a letter-writing campaign. They went to Trenton. They uh, they they talked to legislators. Trenton's the capital Trenton's of New Jersey. Trenton's the capital of New Jersey. Um, and, uh, and it passed unanimously, and it was this moment of good feeling. Yeah. Uh, uh, I missed. Uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Hey, this has been fantastic. Sam, Dr. Wong, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten us on the bigness of data and how important it is because it's a one more way of knowing the world, of knowing the universe, of knowing the cosmos. It's one more way that we learn how we fit in in all this. Now, people, I remind you, I'm Bill Nye, and this is Corey S. Powell. Our guest today has been Sam Wong. And I uh, really appreciate you all listening. It's been another fascinating discussion, Doctor. Thank you so much for taking the time. Remember, when it comes to big data in our universe, science, science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate us and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, the gram, the booking of face, the tweeting, uh, to find out when to call into our show. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, this old uh, audio technology that is still worthy of respect, give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and Corey S. Powell himself. Woo! Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosero is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, science rules. Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.